0: So today, the whole sermon is going to be about uh, one word. And if you've been around here for a long time, that should not be that surprising. Um, Hebrews six is where we're going to be. H- how many of you? How many of you? How many of you think that you're patient? <laughs> okay. If you have your hands up, if you came with anybody, just tap them on the shoulder and ask you, do you think I'm, because I guarantee you their answer will be no. Here's what I learned. When I, when I uh, waited, and waited tables in college, I waited tables at a restaurant. Um, we used to have around here, we don't have anymore, a restaurant called Ruby Tuesdays. Anybody remember? Anybody go to Ruby Tuesdays? Um, they're really big in the South. Uh, apparently the Southern charm doesn't really work well um, in the Northwest. And I waited tables at Ruby Tuesdays and it was, it was a great job. And here's what I learned is um, all of us can be patient as much as our expectations meet reality. Here's what I mean, right? Like you could go to Disney, you go to Disneyland, maybe it's your jam, maybe it's not, but you go to Disneyland and you could, you could gladly stand in line for four hours, right? If you open the app and you look and you know you're going to, like you could do that, Right? Um, when I waited tables, the, the hostess had a rule, right? We were, we were busy all the time. Our location, I went to school in East Tennessee. Um, so Ruby Tuesdays is like a thing in East Tennessee. And uh, so we were busy Thursday night until Saturday night, every single weekend from like five o'clock until 9.30, we'd be on a wait, right? People would come in, we'd like table four, and the host would always look at the sheet, And the rule was, they were taught in training. This was part of Ruby Tuesday's required training. You quote them 10 minutes more than you think. So you look at the list, right? Maybe there's four or five people. You look around, you see a couple tables that are gonna clear out soon. And you see this really nice family in front of you. You know, it's kind of cold and rainy outside. And you don't want them to have to wait too long So you're like, ah, I wanna tell you 15 minutes, Right? So training would tell you, you quote them 25 minutes, because here's what happens, right? If I told you you had to wait for a table for 25 minutes, at 27 minutes, you're demanding to talk to the manager, right? Some of you, everybody, some of you leaned over and like looked at someone in your group because you know there's always someone in the group, that, they said 25 minutes, It's been 27 minutes. What's going on here? I got to talk to a person who runs the establishment because this is unacceptable, right, okay? Here's the thing. If if I was waiting tables and I quoted you 50 minutes, and you got a table at 43 minutes, you know what you do? You go, whoa, look at that! This is a great. I mean, you know, they must have saw us and thought we're pretty special people. 43 minutes? Woo! Where's our table? You come marching in, right? If our expectations. I Meet mean, reality, all of us can be patient, but at the root of it is none of us are really that patient. Right? This passage in Hebrews 6 might force us to reconsider what it looks like to be patient. Verse 13 says this. We're gonna, we're gonna get to our word or two words, but we gotta get some context of verse 13. So verse 13 says this of chapter 6. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and I will surely multiply you, right? So if you've been around church for a while, you probably know the story. Uh, Maybe you don't. Is Abraham early Genesis, early, like close to the table of contents in the Bible kind of guy, right? And uh, God, he's, he's 75 years old at the time and he's moaning, because that's what we do, right? We complain, and he's complaining, oh, I'm gonna have to give all my inheritance to this random slave in my household, because if you don't know this, Abraham was really wealthy, he didn't have any kids, and God shows up to him, and here's what God says, he says, I'm going to make you as many as the stars in the sky if you could count them, and many as the sand on the seashore. He promises him this twice. I'm gonna do an incredible thing through you. I will, I, will, I will surely multiply you. At 75 years old, Abraham has zero sons and God makes a promise to him. And then it says this, okay, verse 15. And so, having patiently waited, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. What does it mean to patiently wait. What does it mean to, when you think about it in your mind, right? If, if I said, you know, oh, there's this great man of faith, and he patiently waited on God, what would you envision? How would you think that person's life went? Because you see, the writer of Hebrews is um, one of the smartest people we have in Scripture. Like, I mean, he knew the Hebrew Scriptures. He knew the stories right? Great rhetorical argumenter, right? Just genius. The book of Hebrews is, if you didn't hear me say this last week, is by many considered to be one of the greatest rhetorical arguments recorded in the first century of any, any religion, of any language. It is masterful. This is a smart guy. And he says, he says um, that Abraham patiently waited. So, so whatever it means to patiently wait wait on God, the writer of Hebrews was thinking of the life of Abraham. Do you know the life of Abraham? You remember what happened after God came to him and said, I'm going to make you as many as the stars in the sky and the sand and the seashore? Do you remember? this is a woman named Hagar. You remember the story? Child named Ishmael. I don't know what you think of when you think about waiting on God, but that story is not a lot of waiting. And yet, when the writer of Hebrews says this is what it looks like to patiently wait on God, he thinks of Abraham. The story of Hagar and Ishmael is not by my definition anybody being patient. It is Abraham taking this this moment by his own hands, making his own decisions, taking control of the situation, not trusting and patiently waiting on God to fulfill his promise. And yet, when the writer of Hebrews thinks about what it means to patiently wait on God, he thinks of the life of Abraham. Whatever it means to patiently wait on God, that story has to fit inside patiently waiting on God. There's another story. Um, God, God has told him that he's, he's going to make as many stars in the sky as the sand seashore, that he and his wife are going to have kids, Right? which if you don't know how it works, requires for he and his wife to be alive. And uh, a, a king sees Abraham's wife and he likes Abraham's wife and he says, I think I'm gonna take Abraham's wife. And you remember what Abraham did? In a moment of cowardice, he says to the king, oh yeah, why don't you have her? She's only my sister. You remember that? In fact, God, it says, uh, God God became angry with the king because he took Abraham's wife, who is supposed to be the woman that he's going to have kids with that are going to be as many as the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore. And Abraham just gave away his wife to a king. And, and so he gets angry with the king and, he, and his wrath dispenses on the king. And when the king figures it out that it's not actually his sister, that it's his wife, he goes to Abraham and he goes, what did you do? Don't you know God? <laughs> Whatever it means to patiently wait on God, the right of Hebrews thinks of Abraham who in a moment of panic and fear takes the situation into his own hands in a moment of cowardice, trades in his wife for his own safety. It doesn't mean to patiently wait on God. Right, if Hebrews knew the story of Abraham. Here, and let me add you a little extra ingredient to you. Um, there's, a, there's a Bible translation, an Old Testament translation called the Septuagint, right? Um, if you don't know this, Bible translations, translations of, of scripture have been going on for a really long time. And one of the first ones was actually translating the Old Testament, which was written in Hebrew, and translating it for a Jewish audience, but translated into Greek, okay? Like the whole New Testament, most of the New Testament was written in Greek, and our translation of the New Testament, we take it from Greek and in English. But before that, there was this thing called the Diaspora in a time called the Pax Romana. You can look it all up. And 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 the Jewish people were spreading it all around Rome, right? And so, although they were supposed to know Hebrew, right? It's kind of like you're supposed to, when you're in high school, you're supposed to learn a foreign language. Anybody else? Right. Uh, all I can remember at this point is I can remember how to talk. I, I count to twelve in French. Okay, because I took French because I thought you know, all the French influence in America that'd be helpful, right? And so uh, they 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 weren't learning Hebrew as much. And so the religious leaders of the day thought, well, we need to translate the Hebrew scriptures, the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament into a language that they're going to understand, and the language was Greek. And when they did, they translated Exodus thirty-four six. Let me let me read it to you. Exodus thirty-four six, a spot that if you were here a couple months ago, Scott Schindler preached and he talked about this passage and and the importance of it, the significance of it. And every Jewish person would have known this, would have had it memorized, and many in the day of the writer of Hebrews would have had this memorized in Greek. And he uses the same exact word that the Septuagint uses right here in describing God. It says this. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, long-suffering. Long-suffering. You you see, whatever it means to patiently wait is actually characteristic of God. That when God chose to describe himself, he describes himself as as a being who patiently waits. But I love the way that it's translated when we go from the Septuagint in the Old Testament in Exodus 34, long suffering. Think about how patiently waiting felt to Abraham. 75 years old. You know how old he was when his son was born? A hundred years old. A hundred, years old is pretty old, okay? You ever felt like the clock was ticking on you? He's 75 and has no kids. He waits another 25 years. That was longer the average, than the average lifespan of someone who lived in that day. He waits a literal lifetime. And in that time, you have to imagine there were many days where he woke up and it just felt like agony. Waiting. When? Come on! Come on, you said it. You promised. You promised you were going to do this. And have you seen the world? Have you seen the mess? And there had to be so many times for Abraham where his patiently waiting felt a lot more like suffering. Long suffering. Sometimes, What it means to wait on God, (laughs) aren't you glad you came to church today? (laughs) Sometimes what it means to wait on God just means to hold on long enough, to endure discomfort, to endure the pain and the hardship. Here, um, let, me, let me read you some, uh, dictionaries have been around for a long time. And so there was a guy in the first century, he wrote a dictionary and he, um, he defined this word that we have right here. here. Here's more of a picture of what the writer of Hebrews is trying to tell us of what it looks like to wait patiently on the Lord. Here, here you ready? Um, he said this, it is to be desperately patient. He goes on to write these words, and I think this is so helpful. He says, it certainly contains an element of forced resignation. Sometimes, sometimes we think that what it means to be mature in Christ is to like be like, ha ha, marriage is falling apart. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Just got fired from my job. The joy of the Lord is my strength. My health is falling apart. Praise Jesus. Right? Sometimes we think that what it means to be mature in the faith is to look at one another in some of our hardest times and go, but you know what it says? God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Sometimes we Believe this lie that what maturity in Christ looks like is some sort of delusional optimism that ignores the pain and the heartache and the hurt of the world we live in and the world we're a part of. You know, that's not the way God interacts with the world. You, you know. You know. It says that that God patiently waits he endures. He suffers long. You, you know that? It says he suffers long. Why? Scripture says because his desires that no one would perish. But instead, God, it says, it says that Jesus wept in heartache. The Bible demands, it tells us that if we're to be like the character of God, that when we experience, when we see heartache and pain in other people, that we are to weep you remember this? To weep with those who weep, to mourn with those who mourn. Maturity, faith, a strength of faith that God declares as righteousness as seen in Abraham, sometimes just looks like enduring. There's a passage where Paul writes, and he says, run the race with perseverance with endurance. You ever had to run a long distance? I did once, and I just want you to know it's gonna come up for the rest of the life of my ministry because this body is never doing it again, okay? Once, I ran a half marathon, okay? I know, I know. God still works miracles today, okay? I did it, just in case you're curious, if you ever see a picture, I did it wearing a shirt that says, I Heart Bacon, and it was very evidenced by my body size that I Heart Bacon. Um, And I ran, 13.1 miles, right? That's a long ways, okay? You know what you want to do about mile 10? You want to die, right? Maybe some of you are like, mile 10, mile one, right? You want to die. And Paul writes to us and he says, Run the race. There are going to be moments in the race, no matter the distance, whether 13.1 is impressive for you, or you're like, Sean, I run a marathon every other month. <laughs> Nobody cares, okay? Um, okay? There are going to be moments in this life that are ugly, that are painful, that are difficult, that are, that are more defined by weeping and aching. and Maturity. Following Jesus, sometimes, sometimes it just means holding on. There's a there's a story in Jesus's life. It's, I mean, for the disciples, in the moment, they had to think it was like the high water mark, right? There are tens of thousands of people following Jesus tens of thousands. The the story, it it says the feeding of the 5,000, but that's just men, right? We know that there were women and children as well, and so there were probably, um, if you want a visual, if you've ever been to uh, college football, like if you've ever been to Oregon State, University of Oregon football stadium, just imagine that many people walking, sometimes hours or miles, sometimes days, right? And there's a countryside with that many people just filled up, just all spread out in pods and groups and families. And they're all there to hear Jesus and to see him do miracles, do incredible things. And you've got to think, right? Like the disciples in that moment, they're like, ha ha, boom. This is why I left the boat, right? Like I'm with that guy. Ha-ha! Do you know who I am? You know, hey, everybody, I'm over here. I'm with Jesus, right? I'm with that guy. And then Jesus does a Jesus move and the moment when the crowds are gathering around him and on the verge of of declaring him king and marching him into Jerusalem, he begins to teach some really difficult things. And the crowds begin to leave. You know, probably at first, they were probably the first that were kind of on the fringe anyways. And they're like, "Oh, this is weird. I'm out of here. But they were probably right out in the edges and they they disappeared first, but then more and more. You you ever had um, someone abandon you you ever had 20,000 people turn their back on you? Begin to walk away and as the crowds are walking away and everyone's making their excuses and you know, some people are just uh, you know, upset and they're storming out and then some people are doing you know, the Irish goodbye and they're like, I wonder, I wonder what's over on this hill over here? And they just like, keep walking until they're gone and there's, there's, there's like no one left. And there's a small little group of people standing near Jesus... And he turns to him and he says these words. He says, are you going to leave too? Remember the words they say? Where else are we going to go? You alone have the words of life. Where else am I going to go? Like sometimes, sometimes that's the greatest statement of faith we can make in this world. When things are falling apart and life is full of darkness and evil and brokenness around you and in you, you look to Jesus and say, Where else? What other option did Abraham have? Oh, you know, I I think we're going to go see a fertility specialist at 92 years old. What other option did David have when he was hiding in a cave? God, God, where else would I go? What other option did Peter have, and the disciples? Where, where where else? What? What other option did Paul have? Right? He has this moment in his life. We don't know a lot about it, but it talks about the thorn in the flesh. And it's clearly something that's really bothered him because um, he he prays multiple times, over and over and over again. It's not like a hangnail, like he's not like, oh, it's kind of annoying. Sometimes I write so much that like I get that cramp right up in here in my hand. And and uh, uh, God, if you could just take that, like it's something really serious and big for him. He prays over and over again. And you remember what God says to him? He says, He says, My grace is sufficient for you. And I wonder if that moment. I wonder if that moment, if if in that moment is what it looked like to patiently wait, to suffer long. As I can only imagine, he said back to the Lord, where else can I go? You alone are the one who has life. And maybe today, maybe the most faith-filled, mature, God-honoring, Christ-glorifying thing you can do is just hold on is to suffer long with the Lord in this busted and broken world, to cry out to him, to weep with him in this pain and still turn to him and say, Christ, Jesus, where else? Where else can we go? You alone have life in a world defined by death and brokenness and pain. May we say